verses three through 10. Second Peter chapter three, verses three through 10. Let me read that for us. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day's like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. It's, today's the first Sunday of the Advent season. And in order to prepare for the first Advent of Christ, for worshiping Christ in his first Advent, the church has for more than a millennium turned her attention to his second Advent. Seems paradoxical, but we get ready to appreciate his first coming by looking forward to his second. And when we do, to paraphrase T.S. Eliot, we find that in our end is our beginning. That beginning, the first advent with its prophecy, a virgin, an inhospitable town, and a manger, a hospitable heaven, angel choristers, inquiring shepherds, worshiping wise men, that beginning is inescapably linked to this ending. The second advent with its fire, judgment, destruction, and eventual restoration with its new heaven and its new earth. By considering our Lord's second advent, we gain understanding and appreciation for his first. But for some people, the second advent is a subject for jokes and derision. Look at verses 3 and 4. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing, And following their own evil desires, they'll say, where is this coming, he promised. The NIV says that these scoffers follow their own evil desires. Whatever is contrary to those desires, they mock, they scoff at. If something, the Christian faith, for example, implies that the path they're traveling is leading in the wrong direction, they'll scoff at it. Their evil desires, lusts, is how the Greek word is often translated, their lusts function as their compass, even their moral compass. They go where their desires lead them and then mock anyone and everyone who dares to suggest they're going the wrong way. The word the NIV translates as following, following their own evil desires, is a travel word. In fact, it can be translated traveling. It's sometimes used of taking directions in order to get to a destination. We find it in the story in Matthew chapter 2, in the story of the Magi, as they followed the star to find Jesus. 
For the people in verse 3, their lusts, the lusts that limit their thoughts and drive their actions, serve as their star. Society is traveling a well-worn path that follows a triplet of ancient stars. The lust of the flesh, I've got to have this feeling. The lust of the eyes, I've got to have this thing or person. And the pride of life, I've got to have people's admiration. It's impossible to follow those stars and follow the bright and morning star, Jesus, at the same time. Jesus is leading one direction, a direction marked by love and respect, but even more importantly, by reverence for God and his law, while these desires lead in another direction. The life well lived, that is the life of following Jesus, will always be a rebuke and a reproach to anyone who's following his or her own lusts. So what happens when people are following their lusts as their guide? What happens when they run into someone who is seriously following Christ? They scoff and they mock. And if you add a laugh track, you'll have the plot for almost all the leading sitcoms. Now, the reality is, and it's sad to admit, but the church has given people plenty to scoff about over the years. But in the last 20 years, something new to Western civilization has occurred. People have begun to mock Jesus himself. That's new. Last Christmas, the actor Johnny Depp released a, he's in a band. He, he released a song that tells the story of Jesus getting drunk at a bachelor party and passing out. That kind of thing was unheard of a generation ago. There was a line that society wouldn't cross, but that line has become blurred. The TV show Glee features a character who's a cheerleader and the president of the Christian Celibacy Club. She loses her virginity to her boyfriend's best friend and then tries to convince her boyfriend that the child is his. The Office has a character that fellow characters, more importantly, viewers, love to hate. Woman's constantly judging everyone, but is at the same time cheating on her fiancé. And, of course, she's a Christian. That storyline's been around for a long time. In the 1970s, when I watched MASH, MASH had Frank Burns, Major Burns, married man serving in Korea with a Bible in one hand and a nurse in the other. TV's longest-running sitcom is The Simpsons, features a Christian neighbor who is the constant source of derision. TV writers routinely insert Christian characters into their shows just to have someone who is ignorant, sexist, and hypocritical to mock. Maybe they feel stronger if they have a straw man to knock down. Maybe it makes them feel morally superior. But mockers come mocking. Maybe the oldest gag in movies and TVs is, in TV is the religious guy who walks around with a sign that says, The end is near. He was around way back in the 1930s, and he's still around today. In fact, this week. He's been around again. And it's easy to make fun of him. Ironically, if the guy who says the end is near happens to be a climate scientist, and he's talking about global warming and rising ocean levels, society deems him an intelligent person who's courageous enough to face hard facts. But if the guy who says the end is near is talking about the return of Jesus and the judgment of the world, he's scorned as a religious nutcase. But the Bible teaches that Jesus will return, and with the return of Jesus, the world as we know it, broken and damaged by sin, filled with hatred and selfishness, the world that we know will end. 
and a new world, a new heaven and a new earth will take its place. Well, even in Peter's day, the subject of the second coming of Christ was an attractive target for mockers. Look at verse 4. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our fathers died, literally, it's ever since they fell asleep. Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You know, and it's not just irreligious people who find it hard to believe that Christ will return. Even church members do. Now, why is that? I think, first of all, it's because they don't want to believe that Jesus will return and the world that we know is going to end. I mean, it's hard to believe something you really don't want to believe. Or to be more precise, it's easy to disbelieve something that you don't want to believe. But secondly, I think people find Christ's return hard to believe because their minds tell them something like this. I've been on this earth for a long time. And still Jesus hasn't come. And it's been 2,000 years since he promised to come back. And if he hasn't come by now, I don't think he's coming. In other words, what they tell themselves is, everything goes on as it has since the beginning. But there's an error in that kind of reasoning which Peter points out. Things have not gone on the same way since the beginning. God has interrupted the natural order in the past, and there's no reason to believe he won't do it again. Now look at verses 5 and 6. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Notice first that they deliberately forget. That's why I said people don't want to believe. They don't want to believe that the world's going to change. It's not something that they're comfortable thinking about. You could paraphrase the original language like this. It escapes their notice because they want it to. According to Peter, these scoffers assume that the world is unchanging. It's stable. It goes on always the same way. And if they're right, then the return of Jesus and judgment associated with it, and for that matter, any kind of intrusion of the supernatural into our world, simply can't happen. If they're right, the world's not that kind of place. But Peter replies, you're wrong. The world is that kind of place, the kind that is open to divine intervention. The world wouldn't exist if not for the original divine intervention creation. And that's not all. There was another divine incursion of the highest magnitude. In the days of Noah, the earth was flooded in an act of judgment. And if God intruded into human affairs then, he can do it again. Now, Peter doesn't say it here, but the first two chapters overflow with evidence that he believed it. He believed that God had recently broken into the world in the incarnation. The birth of Jesus was an invasion. We get all sentimental about the birth of Jesus, that little baby. It was an invasion, a divine incursion into our territory. The scoffers, Peter says, are mistaken. Things have not gone on without change since the fathers died. Nor will they go on unchanged. Because in the future, both heaven and earth are, this is verse 7, reserved for fire. In the days of Noah, the earth was flooded with water. In the days to come, the earth will be flooded with fire. The Old Testament often speaks of the fiery judgment of God. Something that Peter's opponents willingly forgot. But that idea of this fiery judgment of God isn't just found in the Old Testament. It's found in the Qumran. The Qumran scrolls speak similarly of a final fiery judgment. But it's not just Jewish. 
The Roman philosopher Seneca taught that. The Stoic school taught that the earth would be destroyed by fire and then renewed. People across the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles, expected this age of the world to end in fire. Now, it's hard to tell whether Peter understood that fire to be literal. I mean, we approach things and say, well, it must be literal. But in the first letter, he speaks of fiery trials that his readers were going through. And there, it's clear that he wasn't using the term literally. And one of the most prominent fathers of the early church took pains to explain that Peter was speaking figuratively here. And yet, the contrast between, in this text between water and fire seemed to imply a literal fire. Literal water seems to imply a literal fire. I don't think we can be sure. But Peter goes on to tell us, and this may be more important, why the earth is being reserved for fire. It's for the judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, we read that word, ungodly, here, and we think it refers to people who commit heinous sins. It doesn't. The people in mind here are people who go through their days and conduct their affairs and do so without reference to God. We think of murderers and rapists and people who deal drugs to children, but the ungodly Peter has in mind are our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers. The ungodly could even be us. If we go through our days as if God doesn't exist or has no claim on us, There's a possibility in the original language of this verse that I ought to mention. The destruction of ungodly men could refer to the destruction ungodly men endure, but alternately it could refer to the destruction ungodly men cause. In Greek, either is possible, whether it's an objective genitive or a subjective genitive. If the latter's true, St. Peter's thought would be that these ungodly men somehow bring about that cataclysmic fiery destruction that precedes the new heaven and new earth. Now, I think that interpretation is unlikely, but it is possible. Now, I think we can, I think it's understandable why people find it hard to believe that the world really is going to end. The world that we know it is going to end. We live in this world day after day for seven or eight decades, and things just seem to go on and on as usual. We say, I've been around the block a few times. I've seen life firsthand. And because we're such creatures of habit, we think we've seen all there is to see. Large-scale divine interventions like creation and the flood haven't happened in our lifetime or in the lifetime of our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. And since things have not, these things haven't happened in our lifetime or in the lifetime of anyone we've ever known, we take it for granted that they can't happen. They won't happen. But to assume that such things don't happen because they haven't happened in our lifetime is to assume way too much. That reasoning is flawed. It would be like a man walking through the entrance to the Art Institute in Chicago. You go up from Michigan Ave and go in the entrance right there. And it'd be like a man walking in there, looking down that first long corridor, which is Griffin Court, and concluding that the museum possesses no European modern art. But that man would be wrong. The European modern art is in the gallery on the third level. He doesn't even know there is a third level. Now, my illustration fails in this respect. It pictures an ignorance based on spatial limitations, whereas Peter's describing an ignorance based on temporal limitations. In our 70 or 80 years on earth, we've hardly gotten away from the entrance door of life. 
Of course we haven't seen everything. How could we expect to see the, the great incursions of God into the long corridor of history and prehistory even? Now, Peter supports his argument with Scripture, referencing Psalm 90, what's known as the Psalm of Moses. He writes, but don't forget, remember the scoffer willingly forgets in verse 5, this is the same word. We must be intentional about not forgetting this one thing. Dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. If a thousand years is like a day to God, then your lifetime, say of 80 years, is something like a little less than two hours. What were you expecting to see on your two-hour shift? Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand or some count slowness. We count slowness relative to the brief lifespan we have on earth. God is working with a much, much longer time frame. 30 seconds is forever if you're waiting for a web page to load. But a year is no time at all if you're waiting for the Cubs to win a World Series. 10 years, 50 years. <laughs> and this passage, Peter's told us what to expect. Jesus is coming, and with him the judgment and destruction of ungodly people. He's told us why it seems to delay. Our temporal scale and God's temporal scale are very different. Now he tells us who's delayed this promise coming, at least from our perspective. Verse 9, he, that is God, is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's not because God is slow that the promise coming hasn't already occurred. It's because he's patient. He's waiting for everyone to repent. When people read the word repentance in verse 9, they automatically and unintentionally, I believe, think of it as a negative thing. Oh, repentance. But repentance is a grace. It's a gift. It's a wonderful, irreplaceable thing. And repentance we see, perhaps for the first time in our life, the world and ourselves truly. It's like getting a new pair of eyes. You know, people now do get new pairs of eyes. Over the last few decades, surgeons have been able to perform total eye transplants. And they've done a few dozen such transplants on people who were born blind or who became blind when they were very, very small children. <clears throat> and for those people, for the first time in memory, images of light and color stream into their minds. And when that happens, I, I can hardly even imagine, they experience a kind of euphoria. But it isn't long before frustration sets in for them. They're trying to live with this new thing that they have, and it's overwhelming. In an article called Into the Light by Robert Curson, I've read what it's like for most nearly newly sighted people. Even though they now see, their brains don't know what to do with all this sudden and overwhelming flow of data, visual data. They, they are not able to do the things that we do without ever thinking about it. They're unable to perceive height and distance and depth. They're often unable to detect gender by sight. They don't know how to distinguish between something that's important, like an oncoming train, and something trivial, like a buzzing fly. It's just more visual data. Many newly sighted people don't feel like they belong in the same world with people who can see. And family members who are expecting this instantaneous transformation 
often despair over the slow pace of change in their lives. Repentance is like that. We begin to see truly, which is a priceless gift, but we're not sure what we're seeing. We want to adjust our lives to this new reality, but we don't know how. People who know and love us are disappointed with how long it's taking us to change, but not as disappointed as we are. Repentance is a wonderful thing. But it's difficult. And yet the difference we experience is real. Without repentance, change remains outside us and accidental to our true selves. But repentance internalizes change and makes lasting transformation possible. Even though it takes time, indeed a lifetime, to process this flow of new life and change that comes with repentance. We've been aligned to God and with reality. God knows that repentance is absolutely necessary for human beings. And he wants everyone to experience it. He wants you to experience it. Christ's first coming, his birth, life, death, resurrection, made possible for us the experience of repentance prior to his second coming. When the cosmic phase we now occupy will come to an end and a new one will begin. Now, I'm going to point out one last thing out of this text. We've just talked about the fact that with the Lord, a thousand years are as a day. For us, it seems so long since Jesus promised to come back. Um, Fifty generations have passed. But for God, Jesus came the day before yesterday. But Peter also says that with God, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years like a day, a day like a thousand years. I want to consider the ramifications of that. If what Peter says is true, God can fit a thousand years of activity into a single day. What we think is impossible, it would take a thousand years to do that. God can do in the space of a day without breaking a sweat. We moan and say it would take forever to straighten out things at work or in our marriages. Well, God can fit forever into a moment. According to the philosopher Peter Kraft, time is like silly putty with God. He can stretch it and he can compress it. Imagine that you were able to move at speeds thousands of times faster than you're now capable of doing. If you could, everything around you would seem to stop while you took your time and did whatever needed to be done. In the time it takes your spouse to blink an eye, you could get a shower, eat breakfast, play around to golf, and build a house. That's what time is like for God. And may, in some degree, someday, be like for us. But for now, it's enough to have that God for our Father. He can, in an indivisible moment, work into us a salvation that takes a lifetime, an eternity, to work out. He once worked the judgment of billions of people spread across time and space into a particular moment of time at a particular point in space known variously as Moriah, Golgotha, Calvary. 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus is that good. This God is our God forever and ever. And he will be our guide even to the end. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, you know us because you made us, but also because you became one of us. You know what it's like to have time pass and not just remain. Enter into our times, into our lives in new and fresh ways. Working, restoring, renewing us. Preparing us for the sake of our Lord Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen.